My guests today are Dan Oblinger and Alan Tsung. Uh, to say that they train and coach negotiation, it really is a disservice to them and it does nothing to differentiate them from run-of-the-mill corporate trainers who just decide on a whim to run a negotiation course. These guys are the real deal. Dan, why don't you start first by telling us a little bit about your, your story, your background, how you got into negotiation. Then we'll go to you, Alan. Uh, same thing, people want to know about your story and how you got here and how you ended up working together. Okay. Well, I'll just start with my story. And I never, I never wanted to be a negotiator. I just wanted to be a policeman. So, okay. but you know how God works. So early in my career, I, I made a, a police call where I was on top of a parking garage with a young lady trying to jump. And so that uh, opened my eyes eyes to the power of negotiation, mostly because I wasn't very good at it. So that, that launched a journey. Uh, I was fortunate to meet a, a very strong mentor early in my career. I've now been a police hostage crisis negotiator for 11 years, and I now command a team, a very large team in the Midwest of the United States. About, uh, about eight, nine years ago, I started getting into consulting work for private sector firms related to communication issues. And it started out very, very small. It was just about listening is all I taught. I just taught their people how to listen better because in a couple of years of being a crisis negotiator, I realized how important that was and how, uh, how few people get trained how to do it properly. And it is, it's a skill that can be trained. And you can, but the key is it has to be a habit. Right. And that has morphed and developed organically over the last years to the point where uh, I'm now a consulting negotiator for a wide variety of industries and, and companies. And I sure. help executives learn how to negotiate. And well, that's okay. how I met Alan. Okay, I want to come back to you on the listening bit because that's, I think, is going to be really important to this. I think I, I heard you, you talk before about the importance of listening and empathy, which to me and everything I've seen from negotiating, negotiation tends to be understated. It can be mentioned, but it's often around the skills and tactics and gambits of negotiation, particularly in the corporate world. So I want to come back on that, but perhaps I can go over to you, Alan, and talk a little bit about your background and your story. Okay. So we, this is a five-hour uh, uh, podcast, right? Oh, good. Buckle up. <laughs> okay. Buckle up. Here we go. <laughs> well, uh, I ran a company for about 12 years, and I realized that running a company, having employees is not where I enjoyed my life. So I went into consulting. That was about 15, 16 years ago. And I was helping companies uh, develop a strategic plan uh, and that's how I met Jim, Jim Camp, uh, in the, around the 2006, 2007. And we talked about working together because we met in a very weird way. He was coaching a founder of a company that was acquiring one of my clients' company. And I was working with, basically, we, we, we had a talk and we're like, hey, this is one someone I'm working with. It's like, oh, I am too, but we can't talk about it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> uh, so I was coming over from a strategic point of view, uh, and he says, why don't you join me and go into negotiation coaching? And I kind of resisted for nine months. Had you any experience of negotiation other than standard run-of-the-mill stuff you ex you know we come across in life? I was a, I was a lot like most of the people out there who thinks they were negotiating, but they were just dipping their toes in what they think is negotiation until I met Jim and, and everything I saw as negotiation changed. Okay. Tell me about that one then, Alan. You said that people, what they think is negotiation, you had this epiphany that, well, it's really not that. What did you discover? Tell us about that. Well, Many of us have read books or the, you know, listen to podcasts or tapes. So at that time, these are like the tapes that you can put your big pen in and just try to rewind it. I think there was a guy called Roger, oh no, like Roger Dawes or something like that. Yes, I actually have one of his books here somewhere. Yeah, yeah. That's 20 something year old. Like these are like, oh, these, yeah, so you're old school, okay. And so there's all these ideas of like win-win and interest and, and, and I've, I found out that a lot of my clients were losing. And when I read Jim's book on Start With No, 
and uh, people get the, his book all wrong just by looking at his title. The title was not actually a title he wanted, but people listen, look at the title and they, they surmise what the whole book is about and it's completely wrong. You know book publishers, Paul. Yeah, they changed his title. Anyway. Well, that was clickbait ever before clickbait was it a It was thing, a right? clickbait. It was an editor's yeah, clickbait. Yeah. He said, this is what you need to do in order to- Caveman clickbait. <laughs> yeah. so, um, Jim agreed to it and it was, you know, it's a great title. People like it. But then when I read his book and realized uh, a lot of the, the myths that we believe uh, are things that actually cause us to make a necessary compromise. My world changed. Okay. You said um, things we believe, such as? We think that trust is important in and in you can still hear people talk about it. But the funny thing about it, Paul, is that the reason my clients asked me to come in is because their customers no longer trust them. They have created a conflict so big that their customer is about to fire them or they're gonna to have to fire their, their customer and the conflict is so huge. And now we have to find a, a path through it, around it, over it or whatever, without trust. In fact, there's distrust. It's not but like- is your is your path trying to rebuild trust? Or are you saying put trust to one side? Let's look at interests. We don't, we don't, trust is a nice to have, but we don't need it. Just think about it this way. You, you're in the UK, right? Ireland. Ireland. Close. Yeah. Yeah. So whether it's the UK, Ireland, or, or America, do we trust when we do business with the Chinese? Uh, I, I guess not. I, 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 I guess not. I don't know. I, it, it depends on what we mean by trust. See, if I trust, if you know, if I order something, do I trust that it will show up to spec? Perhaps yes. I don't know. Do I trust that somebody will run off with my money? I don't think that's going to happen. If if they're a a legitimate company, there's a lot of commerce done with China. And so therefore you have to have any, any country, any company, and you have to have some basis of trust, but it depends on what we mean by trust. So there's a trust that somebody would be there for me when my back is against the wall. That's a different kind of trust too, that if I give you a hundred dollars uh, and I trust you to give that back to me in, in a year's time, uh, or I can trust somebody not to do something. If I know somebody has no integrity whatsoever, I can trust them to do the wrong thing. So we, I think trust is one of those complex things that we probably need to talk about what we mean by it and maybe some examples. Sure. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just interject. So you're, you're right. Trust is very complex, sales and negotiation. When it gets that complex as a concept, there's lots of things that can operate under the title of trust and they're not the same. And if you're playing with one thing, thinking it's trust, and mm. it's a totally different thing, then you can get in trouble. And I think okay, so, well, so Alan, well, yeah. Alan will probably go there now. Yeah, well, I think that's what we need to do. I think we need to, to talk about that and say, well, what do we mean when we say trust in the context here of negotiation? So when my clients are doing business with other countries, like, you know, like where there is uh, China and the US, I don't think there's any trust. I think we would like the trust. We feel comfortable when we talk to the other person. We have a sense of comfort mm -hmm. that this person have similar values. And how many people do we know that felt someone had similar values only to be betrayed and cheated on? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So we go back to, if we trusted the, 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 the Chinese company to the deliver product, we would never sign a contract with them. We'll never send a third party uh, a qu a quality inspection over there. We'll never inspect before it goes into the container. And we will never need a, like uh, audit documents that we have. It's just in case things go south. Why? Because I've heard of people buying things from China. Uh, China. Look, this is not only China. This is like, it could be in Zurich. It could be someone in Zurich who says they're going to do something and then they break their promise, right? That's nothing to do with China. It just has to do with business. Sure. Sure. I think you're right, because if anywhere we have a contract, I think what we have is a public statement that there's a lack of trust, because if you had full trust, you wouldn't need contracts. And if the contract worked, then we would never have needed attorneys. Yes. Right. So what do we really trust uh, someone in, across the ocean making something from us for us? Nothing. 
nothing except for the feeling, the initial feeling of trust. And you know how long trust takes to build? It takes reliable and consistent delivery of product and services over a period of time. That's really slow. So on the first time you do business, what are you really basing that trust on? And you're exactly what you said. What do I trust? I trust that they're a good father, a good son, a good wife, a good employee. They're able to do the job. They will do what they say they're going to do. What if their supplier screwing them over? Will they have the integrity to uh, do what's right by me? We don't know. We've never done business. So in a negotiation, we actually don't really need that much trust in order to do business. In fact, we can do business when even trust is broken. Just ask Dan when he is uh, negotiating with a hostage taker. If he trusts him, ask Dan whether he would just say, well, in that case, whenever you're good and ready, you just turn to release your hostages and turn yourself into a police station. We're going to go grab a cup of coffee. I've See actually, I, this happens a lot. I've actually, I'm thinking of one night where a man said, look, I'll surrender if you come up on the front porch. Okay. And Does like have a, man, a gun? And talk to me through, through, through the door. Yeah, he had a 12-gauge shotgun with slugs and, and he had a pistol. And right. he was uh, very angry at the police and he was drunk. You come up to the front door and talk to me through the door like a man. And if you're a man, I'll respect that and I'll surrender to you. Okay, and? So basically, if you trust me, you win. Yeah. Hell no. We don't do that. It's not the movies. In the okay, movies, but... I would go up and change places with the hostage. Yeah. Get, yeah, I'm, I'm, that's I'm, not but... happening. <laughs> no, so <I'm>... instead, <laughs> what do we do instead? We negotiate. Yeah. We negotiate. That's an avenue to begin a conversation. You've already alluded to it, Paul. Is there's interests here. There yeah. are values and beliefs that he has formed that makes him say that, to make that a demand. And you can negotiate through that. Yeah. But if I was one of, like you said, one of these corporate trainers that says, yeah, negotiations, win-win, it's all about trust. Well, I just go, boom, there we go. I just go up to the front door and I'd probably get shot. Okay. Because we haven't managed the emotions yet. We haven't negotiated yet. So. Yeah, no, I, I, and I think there's what we have. Well, what I'm hearing there is a protection of interest because it, it could happen that you go up and the guy is going, well, I, he, I, I trust in him because he has the courage of his own convictions. Now you're kind of going, that might be true. However, the result is so catastrophic that it's not a risk you're willing to take. Right. Now others have. So here's the interesting thing is, spoiler alert, the guy came out, walked to us and surrendered without his weapons. Mm. Okay. That's how we're supposed to do it. So we stuck to our best practices mm. and we had discipline to manage the emotions and know that if he's already beginning to make those statements, then eventually he's going to surrender based on experience. Now, now here's training. here, because this is really important. You see, if we, we take that and put it into a business context, Oh, yes, it's beautiful. I see all the time is because we have interest, we have risk, and but we also then have emotion. For example, somebody negotiating a contract needs the deal because their ego or their job status, whatever it is, depends on them getting this deal. And now they have the pressure of that emotion. And I'm just wondering. Talk to me a little bit about that when when emotion gets in the way, because you said you have the discipline of the process and the my guess is that when, when emotion takes over, the discipline goes out the window. Mm -hmm. and, and here's the other thing too, people totally forget about this because in the movies, they don't show it. But the other thing is I have a coach. So I look over at my coach who's Christian and Christian looks back at me. He's like, no, <laughs> we're not doing that. Because So it's, it's your own discipline. It's the okay. team concept, right? And then it's also the experience that helps both those things is the experience because, and well, let's go back to what you wanted to go back to, listening. In a business context, let's take all those dynamics and transfer them. Okay. Somebody says, if you want this deal, you're going to do this. Right. And it's, it's what they're creating in your mind is bias. It's this belief that, man, if I want the deal, I have to do that. They didn't say that though. He, and this, I'm a philosopher by training. So it's like, he didn't say if you, if, and only if you want to have this surrender, you must do that. No, he said, well, if you do this, I'll surrender. Ooh. So if a, a good listener, a trained negotiator, like we were said, oh, he's talking about surrender now. An untrained negotiator who's getting emotional and their bias rule says, I've got to do this if I want the deal. 
But mm-hmm. Christian and I in the, in the command van are like, guys, he didn't say that. He's talking about surrender. He's giving you some terms he would accept. Let's negotiate and tell him what we'll accept. Let's explore right. his interests in his position because he'll move his position if we stick to interest. What he was saying was, I'll surrender to you if you respect me and you let me save face and you, and you meet me as an equal and you don't treat me like a dog. Ultimately, he, he, his demand changed from you'll meet me at the door to I will come out to you, but I will not be put on the ground and I will not right. be handcuffed and dogpiled because he was a military veteran. Right. And we said, right. we, we talked to the SWAT team and they're like, yeah, we can do that. I'm like, yeah. okay, done. So we eventually negotiated it and he, he did it how we wanted it done. Yeah. But if so we had accepted it, if we, yeah. and this is in business, if you accept everything at face value and, and you're, you're placed in the forced choice, you think you're negotiating, but just like my stepbrother said, you're not really negotiating, you're compromising or you're surrendering. Interesting. That's an interesting way of looking at it because it's then it's the opening statement in the terms of a surrender. Right. And now that, but that's knowing what to listen for is key because then it's not just a, a hearing process. It's a cognitive process. You're, you're, you're analyzing it. How, how do you know, because you can interpret it different ways. How do you know that that's, that's what he was saying? Well, one thing is the experience of knowing, uh, we call it negotiation dynamics. And when I say we, Alan and I call it negotiation dynamics. And that is, where are you at in the negotiation? And which way is it moving emotionally and cognitively? Because if you're an untrained negotiator, you haven't been coached properly and you're becoming undisciplined through emotion and bias, you might think when he says, you got to come to the front door that you're at the end of the negotiation. You have to choose. But the experience and the wisdom and the team reminds us no, 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 you're at the beginning of the end. Now we're talking about terms of surrender. You don't have to accept that as an ultimatum because when you really listen, it's not. Uh-huh. It's not an ultimatum, but that's that listening piece, right? So I would say in one word, how do we know? Discovery. Okay. The process. So now we're going to engage him with his offer. We consider it an offer. Right. We might call it a demand. We call it a demand in police world. In the business world, we might call it an offer or proposal, Right. We're going yeah. to explore it and be like, okay, it sounds like this is what you want. And maybe this is why based on things, other things you've told me. And they might say, yes. Like, yeah. Interesting. It, it is. It is I'm open to a deal here. I don't know if I can <laughs> do the front door thing and where I get shot thing. That might be a deal breaker. Yeah. So Alan can talk a lot more about that process. Yeah. Is then how much is risk mitigation? Maybe back to you, Alan, how much is risk mitigation a part of the negotiation process when trust doesn't exist? When, when you talk about risk mitigation, <clears throat> you are trying to appeal to the cognitive mind, the, the reasoning part of the, the negotiation. Um, we, don't, we don't sidestep or bypass the emotional side. The emotional side is, is the path through to, to good agreements, which is based on good reasoning and good uh, logical uh, uh, understanding of what the deal looks like. But without addressing emotions, the fear and the feeling of safety, we will never get to the cognitive part. And, and that's that, that, that sense of safety is yeah. one of those really important things that seem like it's trust, but it's not. And that's actually where Alan and I would tell a student, that's where you need to focus. You okay. need to make them feel safe and then we can do business, but you don't need to have trust. That's a different okay. thing. Uh, now, listening to Alan there, I was actually falling into that trap. Because as you said that, I was thinking, sounds to me like what you're trying to do is build trust. But you're not. You're saying that you're really trying to build safety. But is that not the, is the flip side of that not saying that I trust that you will keep me safe? Is that not what we're saying here? Well, here's trust? the thing. Here's the thing. The more I put, and I think Alan's going to be able to take this deeper, but I'll just tell you kind of how our framework works. If the more, Paul, you're a grown man and you've been in business, right? Think about trying to do business with somebody. And the only thing they know to do is say, hey, Paul, just trust me. It's going to be there. It's going to be beautiful. (laughs) The more we push for people to trust us, the actually less they trust us. And they shouldn't. The people that need trust to operate are serial killers, right? And abusers, right? Yeah. Since the safety is, I'm going to show you, I'm going to let you smell me and look around and check out this proposal. I have no problem with due diligence. I'm going to conduct discovery with you to see if you're authentic, right? 
We're going to let this develop this proposal. I'm not going to force you to do anything. It's all based upon consent. I'm going to give you everything you need to feel safe about this. And then you'll make your decision. And then when everything goes well, this is where Alan will say this. Now we might have a little bit of trust for the next deal because it's based yeah. upon performance and delivery. But sense of safety is if you create a sense of safety, the, pro the byproduct often is trust, but you can't make people trust you. Right. I think also I was probably tending to confuse the difference between the absence of trust and mistrust. Right. Big difference there. And Alan's yeah. the master of, of dealing with mistrust. Go on, Alan, tell us. Well, there's a lot here to unpack. Each thing that Dan says, we can, we can go on on a different tangent. I, if I meet a stranger, we don't have a distrust or mistrust. We just have no trust. And it's mm. easier to trust a stranger than to trust someone who feels that you have broken trust. Okay? So th there's that. And once someone breaks trust, you can still work with them, but in the back of your mind, you will never trust them again. And that's why we will change our agreement and our contract and terms, and we'll continue doing business as long as they resolve a particular pain that we have, okay? Back to what you said earlier, the feeling of trust, it's, a, it's almost like how our body responds to someone that we feel have our best interest in mind. It's a feeling. Mm. There's nothing I can sell. I can't just say, here, buy this. Here, Paul, trust me. The more I say it, the more you're gonna, it turn, it's going to turn you off. But there are certain things that we do that our limbic system have trained us and told us, and we cannot even express it in words. I trust Paul. And so in decision science, we've, they, they have broken it down for us. What are things that causes us to have that feeling? Mm. A lot of that is a sense of control. If we respect someone, we'll respect their, their ability to make decisions on their own and to actually invite them to say, no, this is a lot of the work that Jim has brought to the table that I've learned from. And Jim has influenced me. Uh, the work that Dan and the FBI have influenced me and my studies in the master's program on peace and conflict resolutions influenced me. And the decision sign says, if the other person respects your autonomy, you will feel more safe with that person. There'll be things like, what do you think? Mm. What do you think about this proposal? Paul, if at any time, if it doesn't make sense, I want you to feel comfortable just telling me no, and we'll just part ways. Letting you know you have the right to reject me helps you feel safe. Can that be manipulated, man, used to manipulate people? Absolutely. And that's why sociopaths and psychopaths will use very similar techniques, right? Yeah. And nefarious salespeople will use the same techniques, right? But at the end of the day, you have to be guided by valid mission and purpose, which is de developed to, de de to deliver benefits to your counterpart. That's the program that Dan and I train uh, our students in. That's what we emphasize, not what my students can get, but what our students can deliver to their counterpart. Mm. It's funny now, I wanna just go back on something you said a second ago that comes out a lot in the work we do and that I do, but under the Sandler brand with clients. And it's what I call showing people the exit door, which is just what you said about, look, if any of this doesn't make sense, it's okay to say no to me. And in fact, we build into, all of our conversations, and, and, and you're absolutely right, it can be very manipulative if used with, with, with malintent, but it's a way of getting people I've always seen to, it's not to trust you, it's to kind of lower the defenses a little bit, to feel comfortable because you're in charge. You're, and I'd never heard it expressed that way, but it's about the autonomy, about being in control. Um, Look, we'll spend an hour on this. And if at the end of that, you feel of something that's does not a good fit for you, there's no need for us to proceed. Just let me know. We'll shake hands and part friends. That kind of thing. And I'm curious to know, because it's only when you heard it, it was almost word for word the way I was told it. And my challenge always, by the way, is, and I'll explain this to people about, it's, 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 the, it's a negative, we, we always call it a pattern interrupt because, 
you're absolutely right. If you say to somebody, look, trust me, I'm a salesperson, it's never going to work. But getting people comfortable doing that can be a real challenge. And I'm curious to know if you've ever experienced that, getting people to be that upfront, cards on the table, you're in charge, is somehow or another... We can try all we want, and that's the that's the goal, right? This is what we call, like in gyms, like behavioral and mindset goals. That will be our goal. Our mm. goal is to create the conditions for you to feel comfortable and feeling safe to make a good decision for yourself. Even though we can do all the best that we can, we have no control over how they perceive something. So they may still feel pressure. And so it's about helping people, uh, maximizing the, the opportunities for that to happen. But can we totally say, hey, every time we do this, they're gonna feel safe. There's not a button, there's no button for that, right? And humans are complex. We're, our brain is a very complex adaptive system. And every person that you interact with can be different and can be the same at the same time. Mm. And I'm curious to know then, in, in doing that, because it could be used as a technique, and I'm curious to know how you differentiate between somebody who means it, who's saying, look, there's no need to proceed. If you're uncomfortable, that's okay. Who genuinely means that versus somebody who's just using it because they read it somewhere in a book. Stress. Okay, talk to me about if that. If I put you under stress and it's a technique, we're gonna find out in about a minute. If it's your habit and you mean it, nothing changes in a minute of stress. Okay, so how would you do that? If, if you and I were talking about this, Dan, and I go ahead, go ahead used, and do it. use that line. So Dan, look, if this is not something you're comfortable with, absolutely understand that. There's no need for us to uh, continue the conversation. Hmm. Paul, you don't sound very confident in this proposal. Uh, oh, what, what do you mean? Well, you're, you're showing me the exit door. It makes me think I should take it. Uh, you're the professional here. Is this a serious proposal? Well, I think it's serious, but whether you think it's a serious why, or not. Why would you invite me to walk away? What, don't you want to do business with me? Only if it's the right fit for you. Okay. This is where we get into, okay, I start to believe you. Okay. Yeah. Because what I would say was, this, why don't we do this? Why don't we spend a few minutes on it? And if at that stage it's not right, just walk away. Because last thing I want is unhappy customers. So we deal with people that I say deal with, they're good people, right? And in fact, some of them become amazing uh, students in the system. We have a lot of people that read books, yeah. read something cool in a book. Yeah. And they, in role play, they try to deploy it. Yeah. And we're like, I know exactly what chapter of what book that comes yeah, from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've read the book too. Yeah. And the person who wrote that book is smart. And they, yeah. and it's, that's a real thing that you can do. And that, that really yeah. works with people but not in this situation. Yeah, this is, this is fascinating, Dan, because that's exactly what people in the classroom will say. Paul, if you say that, they're going to say, well, look, it sounds like you're not very confident in the proposal. And they're scared of that, rather than saying, that's exactly what you want them to say, because they're yeah, testing. they're disclosing to you. <laughs> yeah. It's great. It's a good thing. Yeah. Again, it comes back to, he's got to come up to the front door to surrender. Inexperienced negotiator is like, oh, crap. And experience to go through. It's like, hey guys, we're talking about surrender. This is great. It's perspective based on experience and discipline. It's so important. Yeah. It's what it's what we yeah. try to teach. It's what okay. we try well, to then, now now talk to me about detachment because I would assume that it's very difficult to do this, whether it's on the front doorstep of if you, the guy with a 12 bore shotgun or, yeah, or, or somebody in a in a in a business context negotiating over a contract, is detachment from the outcome that if you are emotionally attached to getting the deal that you're not going to be able to pull this off somehow or another authentically. I'm just curious to know what your thoughts on that are. Yeah. You know, a lot of, this is what I've found working with Alan is a lot of what we, we teach and coach. It's a very nuanced thing. It looks a lot like some other stuff that if you did it, we wouldn't support it, but we want our students and our, and our partners in negotiation. We want them emotionally invested. Okay. Mm. We want them emotionally invested in best practice and the team concept and following, uh, following the discipline of managing their emotions and controlling their biases. Okay. What we don't want them invested in is outcomes. Mm. And what's beautiful is um, I think maybe other 
other teams or, or interests or businesses or even individual coaches would struggle with that. But when you have Alan with his 16 years of experience and me with my 11, particularly in hostage and crisis negotiations, I have never once controlled the outcome of an engagement ever. Ooh. That the whole thing is set up that way. Ooh. And I start with mistrust, an intense level of mistrust. You know, usually the SWAT teams already damaged their property by the time I get on the phone. But, <laughs> but, the, the, but the key is you're responsible for doing things the right way at the right time and the right, in the right manner, okay, with the right people. And then, and you give people every, you make good decisions and you influence other people's decisions and you give them every opportunity to do something amazing. Mm. It's the same thing in business. Mm. You can't make somebody buy. You can't make somebody merge and acquire. Could I summarize that, Dan, by you saying, try. sorry, I, I, there was a delay there for a second. Could, could I summarize that by saying then that what we should be doing is attaching ourselves or investing in the process, best practice, as you said, but detaching ourselves from the outcome. Yes. Yeah. And that's when you can tell somebody genuinely, if this doesn't make sense for you, mm. please tell me no, because that's, that's a, that is a gift to me of time that I can then return to you mm. with a yeah. gift of time. Yeah. And there may be something down the road we can collaborate on when we're that yeah. honest with each other. Yeah. Go, go back to Alan. Alan, is that what Jim meant by getting to know? Uh, when, when he, so number one, the title, getting to know is not us telling the other party no. Mm. It's about us giving the other party the opportunity to tell us no, to invite the no, to listen for the no, to look at it between what they're saying and clarify, verify, and validate the no. When that happens, the other person feels more at ease and in control and have the autonomy we talked about. What we want to, we, what we want to do is to care, but not that much. Mm. When you talk about not tied to the outcome, we have no control over the outcome. We really don't. Mm. And what we do have control is what we say, what we do, and how we say and do it. You yeah. talked about the process. The process, when broken down, is what we say and how we say it. Mm. That, by the way, that care, but not too much. That's somebody else in negotiation. I should have, by the way, this organized in topic. I don't. I'm not anal enough. But well, I just I, keep seeing the Harley Davidson sign, Paul. <laughs> yeah. And the book. There is, a, there is a Harley book in there as well. Nice. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Are you a, a, a writer? I am not. I have five children, so I'm precluded. I have children too. Uh, it's it's the <laughs> boss's call. It's the boss's call. Yeah. Do you know something? I thought that for years, absolutely years. I got that when what eight years ago, so what forty seven, and I had assumed for years that if I went and asked my wife, that it would be just a flat no. And then one day we were going to a fancy dress competition or we've been invited to one. And my wife says to me, what are you going as? And I said, Arnold Schwarzenegger, as and I just watched the term. As Conan. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I said, I said to her, I, this is it. I said to her, there's only two problems. One, I need a couple of weeks in the gym just to yeah. buff up a little just, bit, right? Just to tighten up. Yeah, just yeah, to yeah. Up a bit. absolutely. It's absolutely. all there. It just needs to be tuned. It is. It is. <laughs> and the other one I said is I need a motorbike. She said nothing to me, not a, nothing. She just laughed at the first bit. And then a few hours later, I thought I'd try my look. And I said, yeah, can't wait to get that motorbike. Nothing. And I said, you don't, you don't mind. And she says, no, she said, if it makes you happy. Now, I've been married a long time at this. And my happiness had never come into a conversation with my wife before. So, <laughs> so I tell you, I was all over that thing in a heartbeat. And uh, I haven't looked back, but there you go. So you oh, never know. You never know. I, well, maybe I should negotiate for that. There, now, now you're saying it. This, <laughs> if this stuff is any good, you should be able to get a motorbike. Maybe you need to start with something bigger, though. And here's the funny thing, Paul. Think about what I do for a living. It's, it's not about safety. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she, she's let me be a cop for 20 years. <laughs> That's true. That's true, yeah. In America, yeah. where everybody's got guns, you know. Yeah, mad. Alan, you were saying about win-win loses. How is that different to the the other one I wrote down earlier? Respect trumps trust. 
man, Paul, you're getting, you're going right for all the hate likes and hate views here. <laughs> you're oh touching all God. the live wires. This is awesome. Yeah, we're going to trigger a bunch we of- We are like, going to get some hate mail. Right here. <laughs> Bring it on. First of all, I'll just it. break it into bullet points. And Dan and I just wrote a white paper on win-win. And mm. we'll be releasing it in the next couple of days. But at the end of the day, the bullet point is this. Words matter. If I say win, someone has to lose. Win-win is a nice theory. It's almost like, oh, my kids can go play soccer, but everybody wins. Both team wins because both team had fun. The goals mean nothing. How hard you put in there means nothing. Just go and everyone win-wins. I know what they're saying. They say win-win is you get something, they get something. Often in a win-win approach in negotiation, they would say something like something is better than nothing. Mm. 10% of a big pie is better than 100% of no pie. You hear these words, what they're implying, and then they say, well, that's not what we wanted. What they're implying is, let's both compromise. In which case, Paul, the real word for it is lose-lose. You don't get everything you want, and I don't get everything I want, mm. but we got a deal, and let's call it win-win. We feel good. Yeah, I have to say, I when, do hear that word compromise. In, in, a, in a business situation, when I go with my client, and when you're talking to the big box uh, 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 companies, and they are negotiating and buying millions of widgets, this is how it comes across. Hey, Paul, <clears throat> I know you want $2 per widget, and you want to buy, uh, you want to sell us a million. If we buy 10 million, we want it at a dollar. That's what they're saying. I'll buy more from you and you get to sell a lot, but just make a little bit less. What they're saying is win-win is win twice on their side. They get to buy a whole lot at a less, less, less than what they were going to initially buy for. You get to work harder for less money. I got, got it. Yeah. Now, this happens, this yeah. happens if you suck it as a salesperson and you go, I only have one account. You will well, never do that if you had people clamoring for you and you have a full pipeline, correct? Correct. Good salespeople with a good pipeline don't have to compromise. But when they don't, they fall trap. It's a trap. The win-win well, is actually uttered. I've talked to buyers of Walmart, Kmart, and Target, and they every time say, hey, guys, let's have a win-win deal here. They're asking you to negotiate in the win-win approach, which is don't ask for everything you want. We all have to take a little bit less. If you negotiate well, you don't have to compromise. Compromise is not part of the formula. The result could be a win-win, loosely titled that way. And the reason we, well, I call it loosely is because I, I like to, I've embraced the idea of mission and purpose. We are not competing. If I'm selling a product to Kmart or Walmart or Target, I don't want to sell it to the consumer. I just want to sell it to a retailer. We are not competing with them. They're our customer. Why am I competing with them? I am, not, I am not selling to my competitors. I'm selling to a customer. It should never be viewed as a win-lose competition mindset. It's always what's your mission and purpose and what is my mission and purpose. If our mission and purpose align, we get to do business. Six months down the road, our mission and purpose may no longer align and it's okay to part ways, but we didn't lose the deal. Five years later, we can come back and our mission aligns again and we get to do business again. Mm. I'm curious to know people's response to that when they're put under pressure by a buyer. I had it only last week and it's often even more vague than you've outlined in that I got this vague promise that, look, we're going to be probably doing a lot more business Right. Sharpen your this wishy, yeah, real wishy-washy stuff. You know, is there anything you can do on price because we're going to be looking at a lot more of this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm wondering is people, when, when they give concessions, is, is it because they don't know how to deal with that situation effectively? They don't know what to say. Or is it that their fear of loss or losing the deal, it just floods their brain and they, they, they cave? Sure Paul, it's, the it's, the, it's the dynamic of come up to the front porch and I'll surrender. Mm. It's emotion bias. It's the exact same dynamic. Is we're like, look, we, the only, they, 
Nobody said it on their side, but what we heard was, if you don't do this, you're going to lose yeah. this deal. All they said was, can you give me a better price? Yeah. And there's so many ways to negotiate with that. And it's like you and I discussed earlier. Oh, wow, this is good news. They want to yeah. do business with us. Yeah. And now they're seeing if they can get a little sweeter deal. And then we can just negotiate with them and discover whether that's an authentic need or they're just trying to get a little, little bit of the very end, which yeah. with professional purchasers, <laughs> I have a bias towards, yeah, they're probably trying to just get a little bit of the very end and try to pad their, I mean, this is very, I'm sorry, I've been hanging around Alan too much, but just pad their bonus. Well, I, I, and again, that's when, when you're dealing with professional negotiators, procurement, purchasing, and I'm curious to know how much of their game, their inner game is about the game or the result, as in like if you're playing chess against somebody and they don't know how to play and this game is over in six moves, it's no fun for anyone. Whereas if you're playing against a grandmaster, somebody who's equally skilled and this game goes on for hours and there's a banter and mutual respect, regardless of what the end result is, you've enjoyed that process far more. And I'm just curious to know your thoughts on when it comes to professional procurement, are they more about the end result? How much percentage points they squeeze out of you? Or is it more about feeling good about the game? Well, let me, I'm gonna repeat my stepbrother, apply it in a slightly different way and then let him go deeper. He said, words matter. And this is, this is the same thing. This is another win-win aspect. If we say win-win, there's something else that happens in our brain. We associate with that. We think it's a game. Mm. And games have rules. And games have uh, referees or umpires enforce the rules, right? And they have goal lines or we call it in-game conditions where we determine, oh, there's a win or a loss and who had it. But that doesn't, that's not negotiation. And I would include sales here. That, that's not the case. It's an infinite game. It never ends. There, there, there may be some rules of ethics and, and decorum, but in the case of purchasing departments, they are masters. I, uh, I have a five-year-old daughter who's awesome. She's so amazing. And uh, one time we were driving in the car and she said, she's in the back seat and she's like, daddy, daddy, you want to play chicken noodle? And I'm, I love games. I know a lot about games. I've never in my life heard of chicken noodle. And she's, you have to meet my daughter to understand where this is coming from because she's, she's an evil genius. And I said, yeah, I'll play chicken noodle with you because I'm a good dad, right? Win-win. Start to kick in already. And she's like, hand me the pencil. And there's a pencil in the front seat center console. So I, I, I'm like driving safely, but reaching Ooh. back. And then she finally gets the pencil. She's like, good, I win. And you realize you're playing a game. You don't know the rules. You don't know the, the win conditions. There's no referee. Mm. And I think working with both sides of the house in our coaching program, Procurement people come from a culture where they're much better at setting up the game by their rules, where they're the referee, and they understand the win conditions. Mm. I think sales sometimes allow that because they don't negotiate, maybe, perhaps. It's one possible interpretation. They don't negotiate better to, if, if nothing else, understand the rules and, and, and the end conditions, right? And maybe, mm. what, by the way, what the next round could be, mm. what the next round of the game might look like yeah. before they commit to anything. Yeah. I think procurement just... I don't yeah. know that they're more skilled. I think they come from a culture yeah. and they're maybe better prepared to say, look, I have the money. Yeah. And before I give you any of my money, I'm going to need to know some things. Yeah. Well, so they've we been trained this. by salespeople to expect that. So right. in fairness, and we train it to so the culture. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We want salespeople to say, look, I've got valuable products and services. Yeah. Yeah. So before I commit any of that yeah. to this game, I would like to know what the rules yeah. are and that's yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Alan, Alan last question on the win-win bit. I'm curious to know, because there's something I've thought about for a while is that win-win doesn't actually, it's, 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 it's understood that it's, yeah, compromise. I give something, you give something. Is it also maybe about feeling like a winner? If I've had to work really hard for an inch, I feel more, that's more valuable than the, the yard mm -hmm. that was just given up be, and I rolled over and gave it. So that's uh, that depends on how you want to view negotiation, it, it, what kind of game it is, right? And this ties into what you just said earlier about the procurement. It's, a, it's, it's the perception of power. So in a win-win situation, some people think the process of negotiation or the haggling and bantering and back and forth give people this pleasure that they have got something and they got a deal and they can walk away more satisfying this research and all that. 
And that's why the, I don't know 100% sure, but there was a car company in the US called Saturn. You don't, you don't get to negotiate. The price is what it is. How many Saturns do you see being driven around? None, if you're in the US. Every other car company, people say they hate negotiating, but they want to get a good deal. Nobody wants to go to a car place, get bought a car, and then tell the friend, yeah, I bought, I bought it at X amount, and the friend gets, I got a better deal. So everybody wants to get a better deal. And they're proud. They're proud when they get a better deal. So yes, you're right. the The feeling of the game of getting a game, there's a there's an aspect of that. But yet people hate it, right? So how do you reconcile this uh, seeming seemingly uh, 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 con, uh, like contradictory uh, idea? Mm. They hate negotiating, but they want to negotiate in order to get a good deal. They want to negotiate and not have to go through the stress of getting a no or being rejected or having the, the uh, experience in the field loss and all the biases that come with in, in negotiation. There's a parallel there, Paul. Mm-hmm. Every hard discipline. Everybody wants to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger on his motorcycle, but who wants to go to the gym every day? Everybody wants to have an eminently successful sales division but who's willing to actually coach their people and hold them accountable and have those tough conversations about performance. Everything valuable that human beings do in an activity requires discipline, hard work, and sacrifice. And that is the number one reason why people come to us and kind of like in the gospel, not that we're Jesus, but they go away sad because they want hacks and tips and tricks. And they want to learn the things in the book that that seems so cool. And we're like, yeah, okay, well, let's start with your listening habits and your emotional control habits and your bias management habits. And they're like, well, that's not sexy. Mm. I'm like, I, I know, but later on, it'll look sexy, like in a year when you've put in the work. It's like any, it's like personal trainers, right? You'll look like Arnold. It'll take a year though. And they're like, yeah, I'm not interested. And that's why we yeah. don't work. That's why we don't like, you know, that's why I still have my crime fighting gig on the side because um, we have to be careful who we take into the program. And a lot yeah. of people tell us no, and that's fine. Yeah. Have I given away too much, Alan? I hope not. No, I, I, I'm interested in the biases bit as well, because the, the listening I get, and, and I, you gave some wonderful examples of that. You mentioned empathy. I'd like to just explore that with you briefly, but also the biases, because there's, I think this unconscious bias stuff is, is, is one of those terms de jour. I'm not sure people actually understand it. If it's unconscious, then... It's a buzzword now. Yeah, yeah. And, and is it that you're talking about or something different? Um, here's how I look at it. And then Alan, Alan has, we agree on substance, but he, I think he has a deeper foundation. And so the way I've come to, to understand it is it's when your emotions become a thought and not just the passing thought. It's, it's a firm, almost fixed and very uh, persuasive thought in your mind. And so the example is, uh, the guy wants me to come up to his front porch well, there's mm. fear and there's anxiety, but there's also hope. Hey, mm. this is how we get out of here, right? This is how we win. And oftentimes, by the way, undisciplined people will take risks that they don't have to take because they think it's the pathway to a, a huge victory, right? Mm. But then that becomes a thought. And the, th- the thought is, this is the only way we can do this. The thought's not logical. It's not actually based on anything that other person said. But the, the, that fear and anxiety and hope, that cocktail of emotions causes our brain to take a shortcut. And, and that shortcut is, I'm excluding all of the the intellectual hard work of the discovery process to find out, is that what you really mean? Are there alternatives? What, this is your position, what are your interests? And we skip right to decision, yes or no. Do I take this huge risk or not? And mo- by the way, mo- more often than not, people say yes. Is it delusional then? Uh, delusion is a strong word. It's on the spectrum of delusion in a sense. Mm. We form oh. a reality in our mind yeah. that's not really there. It's not delusional like I'm the queen but it's, it's on that same spectrum of this is the truth when it's not. And, and, and if I were, here's the beauty of the coach is I've done this with my hostage negotiators in real life situations is that they tell me we get off, we get on a break and they're like, Hey, this is happening. I'm like, why do you think that? Tell me what you heard mm. right in tone or in words that has led you to believe this. And they'll say, mm. well, it's just a sense. I, I just, that's what I think. <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's what you feel. And it could be right. So we'll explore it. But I'm your coach. I heard the exact different thing listening to him because I'm, I'm detached. Yes. That's why the team concept and having a coach is so important. Yeah. Alan's my coach. Yeah. In real life. 
Yeah, and maybe that's it because in, in, in negotiations, what we often have in, in, in sales teams is the seller is negotiating and maybe their coach is the sales manager, which is sometimes the wrong person because they're equally attached to the outcome. It would be better to have another salesperson who's, who's got as much detachment as you can have, yeah. who has an equal level of training, speaks the same language in terms of the art of the sale or negotiation in your culture. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and they are given special permission by the sales manager to be your coach. Yeah. And it's okay for the primary seller and like in our system and the FBI system, it's okay for the primary negotiator to disregard certain aspects of the coaching if they can't perform it at that moment. But when we're offline and it's more interpretive and perspective, we teach our primaries to really defer to the coach because of the mm. detachment. Mm. Alan, is it mindset or skill? It's, uh, it's both. I like those kind of answers. Yes. Well, I'm going to tie a couple of ideas together. Earlier, we talked about procurement and the perceived power they have. And I believe that they, are, they have a thin slice to what negotiation is. And as someone that have coached both sides, I've coached uh, you, it, to procurement. I work with the salespeople, so I've gone to the dark side. To salespeople, I've gone to the dark side because I work with procurement. But at the end of the day, they're both negotiating and they both see one side of the elephant. And when you tie it to like biases, uh, procurement have a certain bias is that they actually don't realize they're they are trying to assert a lot of power and control on a negotiation much like someone who is interviewing an, a candidate for a job. The candidate who is interviewing feels like they have no power. That's not reality, okay? So all these biases come through and it's, I, I, this is where I part, part ways of my stepbrother a little bit, is that some of these biases is not, it's not an illusion or a delusion. It's actually how our body have experienced the real world around us and we store it in, in our limbic system. The amygdala tells us very quickly in split seconds, I trust this guy, I don't trust this guy, or the feeling of trust. And this is based on how that person have experienced the world around them. A kid that has been brought up under being abused is gonna experience the world different from someone who is raised in a very safe environment. The split second reaction to certain words that trigger them is in split seconds. And their world is real. And sometimes they are taught to observe. And this is based on real world experience that tell them there's danger. And it goes, they go into a fight or flight mode. And this, this can short circuit real good, reasonable, reasonable decision making. Sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes they're right. And a good coach will have to help them see it. Knowing it, this is a basic attribution to, uh, 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 theory mistake that people have, which is they can know something, but how to experience and react to it is completely different. Let's say you and I do something wrong. We both do something wrong. Let's say both of us went to a grocery store and stole some groceries. I might look at Paul as he is just a bad person. Look at him stealing apples. But then if I have to steal apple, I'm like, you have no idea. My family is starving. I worked really hard. I actually worked at this grocery store for 10 years and they never paid me enough. And I'm just gonna get my worth out of it. I would justify my behavior. And even though I may understand how biases work, in a split second, we judge other people doing the same thing under different conditions. Is that though a inherently human bias rather than an experiential bias in that we judge other people by their actions we judge ourselves by intention that's universally true i believe well the, the but that experiences come from learned right a little kid will not understand that a two-year-old will not understand that they get they mm -hmm. learn that from their experience this is how i am and then because they don't have access to the world of the counterpart you don't know what guide their experience their decision and therefore we take a very like a fast shortcut and we attribute motives to them. Mm. I, I, and well, this is where I'd say, Alan's right. But I, I, Paul, I, I'm leaning more towards the thought that there is something inside of us that motivates that too. And it can yeah. be learned for sure. It's definitely yeah. learned. There's no doubt about it. Because also to, to your point, if, if we have two people coming, we're waiting on two people to show up at a meeting. 
and one, one of them you like, one of them you dislike as individuals, and they're both late. Again, what will attribute to one, it must be traffic held them up versus, well, they're inconsiderate. We, and I'm just wondering again, are, are they innately human reactions or is, is it learned? Or maybe it's, I don't know, it's but it's, it, to me it's fascinating. It's because it does guide, it does guide our thinking. It's just that with the people that you like, you may have more access to the world and why they make those mistakes. I have a friend who is a mm. Spanish and every time we invite him to dinner and it's a six o'clock dinner, Good luck. eight o'clock. Yeah. So yeah, I start telling him, hey, we're having dinner at four o'clock. And he shows up on time and he's like, what have you done? I'm like, I figured you out. <laughs> yeah. So once you understand, you can work with it. But, uh, you know, some of these biases, they come in so quickly, we don't even know we've fallen into it. And that's why, you know, Dan is my coach too. So when certain decisions need to be made, we run it by each other. And that's the beauty of having, having someone that I can work with and, yeah. and I can rely on to help me see the biases that I may have. Yeah. yeah. Guys, I've just realized we've gone over the hour. I've been in so much. I'm always flying. Where does the time go, Alan? I this don't is like know. the number one thing we tell I, each other. Where I, I, I want to respect go? your time. Can you tell me, before I let you guys go, can you tell me a little bit about Negotiation Tribe, what, yes. the, what that is? Alan, Alan will. Oh, He's my goodness. The tribe is a, it's a beast that have kind of grown by itself. We've it's created a, a monster. It's a group of people that, well, they come over, they learn. Is that it there, by the way? That's Or that's your website? That's his website. Yeah, that's yeah. my that's website. website. Yeah, creating that's a new one for both of us. Uh, Dan have his own practice. I have my own practice, but uh, we respect each other. And so we've started uh, uh, putting together a new logo, a new website that's in the works. Um, the, the tribe just kind of organically grew by itself. They just... Mm. For whatever reason, I, I can't explain it. There, there's, it was a consequence of all the lockdowns. I think that was that was part of it, is that people needed an outlet for community and to continue to grow their skills and habits when they couldn't be around their colleagues at work physically, mm. and and so it started that way. But it's it's far outgrown that now. It, it has its own life and and breath outside of a, a need that we we have because we're distanced. Um, there's something to be said for working with people from all disciplines and all different industries who share a common passion and that is their negotiation habits and, and the culture of negotiations around them. Mm. And so to somebody who knows nothing about it, has not visited the site, what would they get out of it? It's and kind of, a, it's, and it's attached to LinkedIn, like mostly, like the backbone is, is on LinkedIn. That's where a lot of us interact. That's where we tend to advertise the events. Um, but what would you get out of it? Uh, it is a free, community of like-minded people when it comes to negotiations in the sense that we all want to get better and we mm -hmm. want to do it the right way and we want to start with a little bit of knowledge but we really at the end we want to have it perfect super i like it i've got to put a link to that then and, and uh, on a, the video it's about, it's about interaction i'll send yeah. you a link to the free q a that people can go to on a monthly basis and okay. just learn and share and encourage each other and and hone the craft hone the negotiation craft yeah. And the, Q, so, the Q and A, Paul, for those, this, if you explain the Q and A, they'll, they'll see, they will see what the tribe's about. It's unscripted. Yeah. It's, it's, okay. li it's live. It's not yep. recorded. And uh, we not have a, all kinds of different guests and, and we do role play and it's, it's, it's awesome. It's just, super. it's just truly organic. Okay. And then let me know, I discovered this as well. What's this about? Uh, that is a, a little book I wrote. One, there's two, there's this, the second one's right down there where it says customers who bought this item also bought two and it's, it is a primer for your listening habits. Okay. And it is perfect for negotiators, but it's also great for any human being. Is this the other one here? I can't see it. It's very small on my screen. The green one. There's a green one. There's like, uh, yeah. yeah, first one on the left there. Yep. That is a four-week program to build your habit. Okay. So, so, so they that, go together. Yeah. Uh, you guys working on a negotiation book? I cannot discuss that, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> we were just having a strategy meeting we're writing it's it's it is being written there is already words or did pixels on files all right so excellent it's gonna Good be stuff. awesome It'll if people want to get in contact with you what's the best way to do that well we're both on linkedin just look up uh, alan sang is double l a double l a n sang is t s a n g 
and my stepbrother is Dan Oblinger, O-B-L-I-N-G-E-R. And uh, just connect with us. Uh, and you can go to the free Q&A link. I've posted it here for you, Paul. You can just share it on your notes. Certainly do and, that, yep. And, you're and our, team of, our team of attorneys require me at this point to warn all of your listeners and viewers that uh, Alan will, does photoshops that are sometimes borderline inappropriate. Okay, I feel I there's a story there somewhere. I just don't know what it is. If you were, if you're connected to us on LinkedIn, within two days you'll understand. It, basically, he does funny <laughs> photoshops to advertise best practices in negotiation and upcoming. Oh, I'm, I'm, I have been. I'm going there because I've been in more leotards on the internet than I've ever been in. My I'm life. a Photoshop <laughs> fan myself, so I'm going <laughs> there. Yeah, yeah, I'm going go. there. Walk or run, don't walk. Yeah, it's you'll Excellent. love it. Yeah, I All right. It. I can't help it when my stepbrother <laughs> wants to skate in leotard. So you know, when he's skating in it, I I've been in my, yeah. my I've been in my own Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan outfit. Yeah. Paul. I've done that. Anything. I've done that with people as well. I've put their head on on somebody yeah. from a sports team that yes. they don't like. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You're on to it now. We're yeah, like, you're in the real pictures, Paul. <laughs> I don't put his face on other people. It's some real pictures of him. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Not put their face on somebody else, but dress them up in their. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I got it. Body, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh Guys, listen, I want to thank you so much for joining Thanks, me today. Paul. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, look forward to talking to you again in the future. Maybe when when that book that you're not writing drops, we could talk <laughs> about it then. How about that? I'm going to promise you a copy, Paul. Because that's, and that's I will promise to review it and have you back on. How about that? <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Thanks, All right. Paul. Listen, thanks again, guys. Really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Ciao.